0: Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Hi, Jared. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, How I Became.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Um, Kelly. Happy to be here.
0: Great. So, Dad, Omni Channel, shopper, marketer, agency owner, entrepreneur, content creator, which I know isn't on your LinkedIn page, but you are. You create a lot of amazing content, a nano investor, and very tall guy. So I wanna dig into a little bit of each of those, get a bit of a, you know, the big picture of you, and then we can dive into each element.
1: Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, dad is at the forefront of everything. You know, I've always believed health and family come first. You know, there's always t- you can always make time for business. You can't always make time for everything else, but we really should be prioritizing those two things, right? If you don't take care of yourself, you're never going to be successful at whatever you're doing because if you're not at your best, how can you possibly perform at your best? And you know, mm-hmm. family is so vitally important. I and, mean, you know, we talk about it a lot. You can't make back the time you lose. You only get one chance at a lot of these things. And for entrepreneurs, you know, I'm really fortunate. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and um, my father was the one who was the out of the house side of the business more so but he always made a point to be home definitely almost every weekend he was available at home he was home for most evenings even if it was just to come home for dinner to say hi put us to bed then he could go back to work which was you know driving you know 30 minutes wow. or so from Thornhill out to Pickering where the store was you know so he really instilled in my mother of course as well um, in raising us and doing all the Other things that you could do offsite back in those days, so bookkeeping, accounting, all the financial type things, you know, really instilled that importance of family first. So I am a dad. I have a four-year-old daughter who's incredible. She's kind of got into some of our businesses along the way too. So she kind of knows what it's like in a little bit. Definitely exposing her to a lot of the industry as we go. We were kind of chatting before we started about, you know, my weekend plans and, you know, we're going to all these different food festivals all summer, partly because I want to expose her to all the different cuisines and the cultures and the music and the dance uh, and the fashion she got. We were at uh, AfroFest last weekend. She got really absorbed by all the incredible patterns and all the, the clothing. She really loved it. But we're also looking at like, all the different brands because now I have founder friends at all these events, which is incredible. So we get to go and say hi. She gets to see what goes on and what's like. So it's really cool. So yeah, so definitely family and health, top two priorities. Number one number one first and foremost so i'm an omnichannel marketer it's true i run a marketing agency called the think tank we are based here in toronto but work with uh, consumer packaged good brands in particular but really any consumer oriented brand in developing campaigns that get consumers excited to come and try and buy or sign up for your product or service so if you think about you know in a really traditional sense that would be you know a beer company's summer promotion where they have a gift in every box it could be go to the store, buy three products and enter for a contest for a trip to Italy for a week adventure with your family, all the way down right. to doing POP displays in store and contests and everything in the digital space and podcasts. And that's the beauty of Omnichannel. It's really understanding where that consumer is going to be and delivering the same message you're delivering everywhere, but in the right style and and format and in some case yeah. level of authenticity to get that consumer really engaged with you because these days... It takes a lot of touch points to really influence that purchase. Uh, and a lot can go wrong, particularly in Final Mile. And for a lot of brands, that Final Mile is in a store. And so making sure that yeah. your program pre store is really strong is important, but it's also important to consider that last bit, which can be very expensive. So it's an important one to, to figure out. And that's really what the agency does uh, in a nutshell. And is I there, guess you. Who... Yeah, sorry.
0: So sorry, the, the agency is focused on that internal, uh, that. that... Total experience or more that final
1: the final piece? We do everything. So we take a so typically the way we work with most of the brands we work with is that we get brought in to do specific programs. For some larger brands, we do support them with their overall retail strategy in terms of the marketing components, looking at things like how do you leverage your trade spends, how do you get secondary locations Mm with flyer positions, some at shelf discounts, which is all the trade side of things. And then shopper is more of the at-shelf communications, those point of purchase displays, all the corget prints, loyalty programs, and that's kind of that aspect. So for us, we typically get brought in when there's a brief, usually something around like a season. So something like right now, back to school is rolling out into market. So we're actually already starting to plan out, you know, winter holidays that's and wild. like Valentine's, right? Like it's crazy. But a brand will normally come to us and say, you know, we want to have a campaign running this during this period, activating in these retailers, Targeting this audience with a whole bunch of consumer insight with this type of budget, develop a campaign for us. So we'll develop everything for the creative, how the budget gets allocated, any partners that need to be included, how to leverage all the different retailer programs. And we'll put the whole thing together and then execute it. Mostly by ourselves, There are some areas where you have to have partners. Things like retailer media is... You know, we obviously don't own that media. We have to work with other media agencies. And then often brands have partner agencies they really like. So we'll work alongside them to leverage that. You know, they might have some assets we can leverage or we might, you know, if they have a social agency, we'll team up with that social agency because they are only doing buying for them. We don't want to do the buying here. We'll get them to do it. Right. Like here's what you need. Here's the budget. Just make it happen. Right. So that's what we do for most of our clients are these really large campaigns. I have a real interest in small brands always have always will so we do work with smaller brands on a more restricted level so you know we do a lot of digital work on a smaller capacity we can do if you're trying to launch into some of the independents they do not really have these robust programs like a loblaws or a sobeys would have particularly on the loyalty side so you know we can mm-hmm. kind of help sell in different ideas whether that's going to be a poster or some type of activation although it's harder to do in independence just because there's fewer options uh, but we do all that, we do package design and branding. And one of the newer things we've rolled out at the agency, actually, based on my experience being a founder for two and a half years of a CPG product, is a program called the Incubator, which delivers very specific retail-oriented design with some additional services in the design realm, and then digital and retail marketing strategy support. And we've really designed it so that we can come in and support emerging brands who need very specific parts of strategy or design, right? Because everything in retail, it's a specialized type of design for print. And we're really good at that. And we're able to just deliver design thanks to a couple of different print partners we have. We can just rapidly handle just that design piece because most brands don't need a huge right. campaign around it. It's we're getting an opportunity to launch into a bunch of stores. We need these displays done. So we need to have this call to action very clear. We need to be, make sure we're standing out. So we do this for tier one CPG brands. So we bring that expertise down, but we're just designing quickly. And then the strategy is awesome because we start at you know five hours with, the, not with me, cause I'm not the p- true expert in this. It's my VP, Sherri-Ann, is. It, you start we start on a five hour block with that and add an hour on it as we go. So, you know, someone tried to call me like a fractional agency recently, which we technically, that's technically what the program is in many ways. But it has, it's much more as a just-in-time agency is more how I'd look at it, right? You need right. a couple hours of consulting. You don't need someone to help design everything. I just need you to come in and tell me, you know, here's my entire annual strategy. Here's all the key occasions we want, and here's the retailers we want to focus on. How do we make this all work with our expertise? So that's kind of an evolution mm-hmm. that's come from my experience working with emerging brands and being in, having been a very tiny startup for, you know, three years, really, technically all in.
0: So let's go into the the start so the next piece of that is the entrepreneur element so tell me i at least know one of those i don't know if there's others but let's hear about the entrepreneur side
1: yeah so the the biggest one and the one that is most relevant is definitely my most recent venture which is wonder nut butters which is was a globally spiced but not spicy peanut butter company that allowed you to spread the world so i co-founded that with my wife uh, in the first year of the pandemic off of a Random idea I had, you know, I, I'm a, not to brag, but I'm a pretty talented scratch cook. I got, I uh, I grew up vegetarian with parents who cooked a lot at home. I was homeschooled for a lot of my elementary years. So I grew up in the kitchen with my mom. Grew up watching very little TV, but one channel I did watch a lot of is Food Network. If I wasn't reading about fantasy stuff or animals or something science it was going to be a cookbook. It's like, I love food. So I was cooking something in the kitchen, a, a Thai noodle dish. I was mixing, you probably made the same sauce I did, you know, peanut butter, some lime juice, sriracha. It's It's Thai. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, man, I just wish this had some lemongrass and lime leaf. It was some of those more authentic flavors. And it just, for whatever reason, clicked. Why can't I mix this into the peanut butter? Because we do that with cinnamon. We do that with chocolate. We do it with caramel. Okay. Why can't we go savory? And so I went to turn to ask my wife. And there's a pot on the stove that we use for this Moroccan stew. The pot was clean. it was just had to put it away yet. Uh, but that also had peanut butter. And it cinnamon as, as a top spice. I'm like, oh, there's the transition flavor where people go, oh, I understand how this can be sweetish but savory and I can see that blend. And then peanut butter is not a thing outside of North America. And peanuts aren't huge in Indian cuisine, but they do have a presence. And I cook a lot of Indian food and Gary masala and Peanuts are just a delicious combination. And so that was our third skew. So I basically had the idea and when I asked my wife, like, what do you think? She goes, I I don't know. Go do research, build your business case. This is your world. Go do your thing and come back. And that's basically what I did. So I spent about a month and a half, two months researching the category, reaching out to other founders in the space, trying to find out if there's a reason why nobody was doing it, because that's always a a thing, right? You might, I had another business idea, which is so rare, by the way. One of the biggest reasons I hit go on all this is that I don't do business ideas. I'm a strategist, not the like product inventor type guy. Right. So I had, I actually had three, but two of them were worth researching. And the other one I looked into, and I was talking to one, the only other company who does it in Canada and like, yeah, there's a reason there's only one of us, we have this many suppliers for this one ingredient. I'm like, oh yeah, no, 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 Complexity. Gotcha. I'm out.
0: Um, when you see that complexity, it's almost like as a, as a founder, when you're trying to figure out, is this a viable business it's think about all those complexities and if, what are the reasons that this thing doesn't exist yet or the version of it that you're creating doesn't exist yet. It's a good insight
1: there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not to say if no one's doing it, you shouldn't do it, right? And, nope. it, and it does need to, very much to your point, it doesn't need to be a very calculated approach, right? So I can talk about, you know, midday squares at of Montreal is a great example, you know, 26 different co-packers and co-manufacturers turned them down and said, you can't create this with machinery. They went and built yeah. their own factory to create it because they saw that there was machinery available, but you needed to use it in a, in a creative way, in a very similar way that right. the team for their Vita tea out of uh, Calgary, an amazing energy drink, all tea-based, they're the only pouch-based drink in the, ent- they're the only right. machine of its ty- type in Canada, right? So again, it's one of the things that we saw being done and said, we can do this too now both of those required building their own factories just to understand the scale required. Right. right? So you you Mm -hmm. have to look at at the full cost of what it's going to be. Um, So in my case, I had, I ended up finding two companies doing similar things in the U S one of whom I I talked to right away. And the other one I just met recently, actually, very funnily they're out of I was at, but the one I was in touch with was amazing. And they actually had a spicy tie with a very similar recipe formula to kind of what I was doing quite different, but close enough. And they were amazing. It was Elliot's, Nut Butters. If you were on the West Coast of the United States, you were able to buy their product. Unfortunately, they actually just shut down as well this past, in the last month or two, the last production run was January. Very sad. A few months months shy of 10 years in operation. Yeah, that's a category issue, but don't worry about that. They're all all okay. Okay. Um, We'll we'll look
0: into some of the wind, like some of the Pivots versus sunsetting, and and we'll 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 dig into that. that. But I also want to know about the nano investing side of things, and then we'll we'll dig into each area.
1: Sure, sure, sure. All right. So So nano investing. Let's jump to nano investing. Yeah, because a lot of people ask me about that, and I wanted a term to kind of describe how I'm supporting brands. Because the reality is, to be very transparent with everyone, I'm not investing thousands upon thousands of dollars because I have businesses and a kid and like you know. We, have you seen the yeah. cost of living today? Like I do okay, but like not that okay. But I want to be able to support brands. So there's a lot of platforms you see in the United States that allow you to invest and get equity in companies. And there's not many that are allowed in, particularly in Ontario. Ontario has some really weird rules about investing into an, like outside of Ontario. But FrontFunder is a Canadian based platform that does the same thing. So it's a proper investment Front platform. FrontFunder. Front funder. Oh, I should probably okay. also disclose that I'm technically a like micro tiny itsy bitsy own like ten shares of Front Funder as well because I okay. I've done it. But what's really cool about that is that there's a lot of emerging Canadian brands in particular who are jumping on there. And there's some of the brands that if you buy a lot of local or you're paying attention to a lot of uh, what's coming out in the better for you space, you probably know and are maybe buying. And the thing with most funding rounds, when it comes, to, you know, there's all these brands that lots of us want to support more than just buying the product. But they go to a funding round and yeah. the minimum buy-in is like $10,000, even $5,000, right? I don't have $5,000 yeah. I can just pull out on a risk. Absolutely no offense to any of these founders, but like legitimately a risky gamble yeah. for $5,000, right? It's incredibly yeah. risky. I mean, the, I forget, I was just chatting with another founder who reminded me of the stat. But it's, it's something like well over 80%, almost 90% of brands don't even make it to their first million in sales. Right, it, so the ones who are yeah. investing have clearly done I'm that, sure but like just yes, they put paint a picture for everyone, right? It's crazy. So what's nice about front funder is that the, the founders can go as low as two hundred and fifty dollars as an investment. So if you want to go and support a brand, it means that you as a as just a normal Joe Schmo can own. Sure, it's a little micro tiny piece, but you get to invest in something you actually believe in, and of course you can go full yeah. funding too if you have bigger funds. VCs invest through this too. So it's literally it's a, it's a, a Proper equity, like legal framework, equity, ownership, investment, crowdsourced investment platform. So it's incredible. So that's where I do most of it. I have a couple other like small things with friends here, there, but funders is amazing. It's where I do most of it because it's all secured, right? It's all, it's, it's a proper uh purchase of that's a company, correct. which is cool. So um, really cool. yeah, I really like that. So that's why I do most of it. If you're outside of Ontario, you can probably take advantage of like WeFunder and it's another one in the US that's, that focuses on brands specifically looking at environmental impact. There's a ton of them. There's lots of really cool ones in the US yep. just being in Ontario, we're limited. Limited.
0: So let's let's go back to Wonder and dig into that a little bit. So you gave us high level of of the business. You've since wrapped up that project. Can you walk me through a little bit of of the evolution? Because you you did invest a a lot of your time, I know. I'm sure there was dollars. I'm sure there was a lot of wins. So what ended up coming to the end? And then I also... What are some of the wins and successes that came out of uh, Wonder?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things I can say about my entire journey is that despite being exposed to many founders journeys and listening to all their podcasts and being adjacent to all these CPG brands for almost my entire career, actually, um, I still underestimated nearly every aspect of the business. I underestimated how yeah. much money it was going to take, how much time was required, how big the margins needed to be, how long everything takes to you know, move forward, how hard it is to break into retail. And, and again, I had great advisors. I talked to founders all day and I still underestimated it. And so, you know, when I launched it, I still view everything as a massive success. Just as even as I paint this like horrible negative, I still view the whole thing as a success because I launched it for three reasons, right? So I only shared one. I'm not an idea person, but I had an idea. So I had to do it. I yeah. came from a family of entrepreneurs, so I kind of needed to do it for my own, you know, pride. But yeah. the big one was at the agency. I shared that I was trying to help these smaller brands, and I didn't have the incubator program yet. So in my first years, I kept developing these programs for these emerging brands, and they kept saying things like, "That's awesome. It's just not for us." I'm like, what do you mean it's not for you? I designed it specifically for you. And I'm a big believer that if your theory and secondhand knowledge aren't getting you the results you want, you have to get your hands dirty and go and do it yourself to figure out what it is you're not understanding. And so I needed to understand what it takes to get the idea from your head to a retail shelf, regardless of how big that shelf happens to be. So, you know, I did a lot of things right. But what ultimately ended up crashing us at the end, the biggest one was merchants. Margin was definitely the biggest one. Inflation finally yeah. caught up to us in our supply chain. It took longer than most, to be honest, but it definitely caught up to us, and it took our margin well below a point of any type of viability. So that was the biggest factor, right? Without that, without margin, there's zero point, And without margin or a path to get reclaiming the margins you need, there's zero point in investing in anything else. But when I launched, yeah. to your point, yeah, we we invested some cash. Uh, not enough that I was going to you know put my family at risk but certainly a lot. And so I had very clear black and white metrics of like, if we aren't achieving these KPIs, we're done. This isn't up for discussion. It's a clean black, white business decision because I, like probably many listeners grew up watching Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. And I yeah. never want to be that person who's taken the second, third, fifth mortgage on the house. Right. So and those
0: metrics that you Gave yourself. Sorry to cut you off, but the metrics you gave yourself was it on a time horizon you had to hit that within three years, or how did? When did you want to achieve that that success of or that like point of, you know, blow it up or shut it down?
1: Yeah, great question. So I didn't really have so much of a target for if we hit this point, we'll blow it up. It was more if we aren't hitting these baseline numbers, it just doesn't make sense to continue moving forward. So it's more of a, if we dip too low, we're just going to bail out. And I did that kind of intentionally, just knowing the success rate of the industry. I mean, I came into this wanting to, of course, I want to become, you know, the peanut butter king who doesn't want to become, you know, the leader of the category. But I came in very realistically about it. And because I had a very large objective being just the learning process of it, I think it really helped me have a very clear vision. So my metrics were really around sales volume and repeat purchase. So the two things that everyone should be paying attention to in terms of CPG, like number of doors, important, not as important as how many units you're moving through those doors per week and how many VP purchases you're getting on your direct-to-consumer channel or whatever other channels you have. And so for the first longest time, we were okay. We were hitting the numbers. And then we had a few, some things outside of our control, like lockdowns, where foot traffic just dropped off at Independence. And then other aspects like we didn't have enough capital or our funds were running a little bit low and the numbers weren't strong enough for me to want to tap into things like going to BDC to get a line of credit or a grant. So we we hedged on a couple things, which didn't wouldn't have helped as it turns out, because we still would have ended up running into margin issues. But it certainly made that decision a little bit easier. The time commitment to it was starting to really hit us too. So that contributed to us wanting to shut it down. But the big one is still margin. <laughs> And then the biggest one yeah. actually was a little bit was burnout because we didn't have a purpose-driven passion is how I like to frame it. So if you look at the brands who are really just exploding and doing really well today, they all have an additional layer of purpose beyond just being a really cool product, right? It can be something really simple, yeah. like just being really clean label and being the only one offering that. It can be being part of a socioeconomic movement. It can those being B-Core, like there's all the different things you can do but you need that for a whole host of reasons. One, consumers are looking for it. It's part of the reason they'll pay a little bit more of a premium for your products because it does cost more to make the product. But also as a founder, it's one of those things that you lean back on when you hit your deep rut of depression, which you will hit many times in the path and process. What always bounces founders back up is either a customer writes them and tells them how much their product has changed their lives, made their day, had some positive impact, and they kicks them in the butt, and like, oh yeah, it's for that, that's the reason I did this, or that's why. they look back on their purpose. It's like, oh yeah, I'm here to make the world have less plastic in it and look how many bottles I've saved type of thing, right? And they, it, re-in- it re-energizes them and invigorates them to get back on, back up on their horse. And we didn't. We gave back, but it was never a, uh, I just had a really cool, tasty product.
0: I'm going to challenge you a little. You think that any business for it to succeed has to have one of those esg goals or something behind it because i think that there's a lot of startups who are doing fantastic that have not much of that behind it not you know it's
1: just i think
0: you know like i'm curious if that if
1: so i i paint it as a very broad um purpose-driven passion right so so there are so you're right it doesn't need to be how do I put this? Um, 10%
0: donated back or right, something like right. that.
1: They don't need to necessarily have okay. that, although a lot of brands do. And if you look at most brands today, almost all of them do have some component of that to them. What it comes mm-hmm. down to, particularly in a hyper-crowded category, which let's be honest, most are now with a lot of new entrants. Yeah. The number of options to differentiate is becoming a lot rarer and harder to do. So back okay. even like four years ago, you could say, I am a a keto energy bar and that was rare now there's at least five on the market at least there's probably more yeah. that i don't even know of right i'm just a thing off the top of my head so that original above the bigger the purpose originally was we're delivering a high fat keto oriented solution well now there's five mm-hmm. people saying that so now that's not enough so now what's that next layer Assuming that they all taste good and have the right texture, assuming that's yep. all perfect, right? Like we're just, let's assume that for the for the time being, because someone still needs to try the product initially to discover that. But assuming that's all good, yeah. That initial hook very often is a larger purpose. It doesn't always need to be, mm-hmm. but it's a key. It's often a key part of the brand identity. It's talked about frequently and, in their in their messaging.
0: And if there is a premium to be able to do that going forward and the problems that you're communicating right now is that hurts your margin even more when we know that margin is especially in when you're working in CPG and you have your own margin and then the store's margin. Do you think that's gonna continue forward when we see that, you know, a a thing of lettuce that used to cost a dollar is now
1: $5? It's a great question and you know what, I think we will. And I believe that for a couple of reasons. And one is Mm -hmm. thanks mostly to the younger generations in particular doing a lot of pushing and being very vocal about expecting brands to start to be the drivers of change because realistically we can all stop using plastic straws tomorrow it's still not going right. to make a dent compared to all the plastic bottles being made by cook right like it's right when it comes to scale impact the biggest players and yeah. contributors to the problem have to be also fixing the problem and so you, mm-hmm. you know Lots of CPG brands in the last little while have been trying to roll out, you know, recycled and compostable in in confectionery in particular, you know, wrappers. So like Nestle is now rolling out a whole compostable line of of chocolate wrappers, basically. So if you go yeah. into the emerging brand space, lots of them are now starting to use. Better for the world. They're almost the leaders
0: of it. And then the smaller guys have to follow suit to what the bigger players are doing.
1: You know, it's a bit of leapfrog, right? It's the small brands who who are really connected to the the consumers who care the most and are willing to pay the premiums for those things. That are the ones who are championing a lot of this new technology and, and pushing the boundaries a little bit in what's feasible in packaging. Because they're the ones who, will, who hmm. will do it as a drive. The big guys are kind of keeping an eye on it. Then once there's enough pressure on them to make right. the change, because it's a huge cost to them to change, right? Like everyone's just like, oh, it's just yeah. the product. Like, no, 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 no. You have to overhaul your entire manufacturing process when you bring in a new, a new package, right? right? Um, it's a ton of testing and all that stuff too. But once they start to do it, once there's enough buzz and there's enough demand from all these smaller brands in that community pushing it, then the bigger brands go, okay we have to make that change. And so they start to make the change. And then it starts to become mainstream, which helps drive the price down for everything. So then more brands are able to jump in and start to do the same, and then it starts to shift. So that becomes the norm, which is how most things happen. right? If you look at any dietary trend, any of that, you have a small group of brands who make the category, big brands start paying attention when there's enough money in it for them to do so. Start buying into it, blow it up, lots of new entrants, costs of everything comes down, becomes more mainstream.
0: Right. And so I, I I read your article that you wrote about the four major reasons for sunsetting wonder. And and within that you also talked about that passion element. And I'm curious to understand a bit of the your perspective for founders who feel that they're in that rut. Because even when I had my own brand, I felt that and I was just like, you know, you're lying on your bed and you're like, I don't <laughs> I don't want to do this right now. Where does that where does the switch come between passion and motivation? Because sometimes the passion the passion is paused for whatever reason but you just have to keep yourself going. I think you had some very real reasons where sunsetting was the right call, but how do you how do you make that that decision?
1: Yeah. It's, it's definitely a tough one. And, you know, not to say that I wasn't emotionally attached to my company cause I, I definitely was, of course. but you know, kind of going back to, to purpose, a lot of people f- founding and creating brands now having a, a really emotional attachment to the product, right? They're creating it yeah. because of something they found lacking or they needed. And so for them, there's a deeper emotional attachment. So for me, it was a lot easier cause I had, you know, I think everyone should have really clear metrics as to say, like, once we hit this point, is it worth continuing or not? it's going to be a little different for everyone. It's going to be a lot based on what the consumer feedback is about why they're not buying your product, right? If they're saying it's too expensive and you've sourced out every single possible vendor you can, and you can't get your cost down. It's just not viable. No matter how much you love that product or or your consumers love that product, it's just not going to be viable. So, you know, on, I think one thing, I uh, talked about a lot more now in the founder community, which I think is great, is that we all, all recognizing that social media is still, as much as we say we're trying to make it more real, it's still really positive. And it can be really overwhelming when you see a lot of positivity. And even those who preach being really authentic and transparent, and this is not a jab at them, by the way, but who, who you know, have that more transparent approach, you know, they only share the negatives only so often. And, and the reality is, is, you know, most of our days are actually pretty mixed right? Like, they're just not that exciting. And so, you know, when good things happen, you like to share the good things and bad things. This is a fear of exposing exposing failure. And, you know, bad things only happen so often as well. At least that's the perception. What we don't talk about so much is that that one bad thing is actually going to have a ripple effect on you for the next four weeks. And we don't talk about that ripple so much. We just talk about, yeah, this thing happened, but we're going to pick ourselves up and we're going to go. And um, I think all founders should we need to get better about talking about this. But the reality is we all go through it and we all hit that wall of just, you know, this sucks. This isn't working. This isn't going the way I want it to. And one of the strongest things I think we can all do is recognize that most founders I know have an open door to other founders, particularly if they want to talk about what's going on in their company and they need a sounding board and right. bounce ideas off of it. And that was one of the biggest benefits I had and continue to have actually in both agency life and when I had the company is that I have an incredible network of other founders who I can just call up and be like, hey, you know, I'm having a really crappy day. The sale didn't come through. This thing just blew up on me. Let's talk and they'll either be like, hey, you want solutions? You just need a vent. I'm like, yeah, I just need a vent, cool. We'll vent for 20 minutes and then, okay, I'll turn it around, but like, do you got something to vent about? How's life? And we'll then we'll just chat and talk through and you feel a thousand times better knowing that, hey, you're not alone in it. Others are going through it. And then you you know can sometimes get solutions to problems too.
0: You bring up two good points there and I want your perspective on both. One, that loneliness element, because I think even even as a, having a co-founder and I know you had your wife in it, it's still incredibly lonely. So having that community is great. And the second thing you mentioned is um, venting needs to happen. You don't want your life to be completely negative and you don't wanna only vent, but, but it's important to be able to have someone, but you hit on the piece of, do you, want vent? Like, do you want to vent right now? Or do you want to have a conversation and try to find a solution? And sometimes you just want to vent and sometimes you want that founder to be like, well, let's talk through the problem and, and solve it. So curious if you, I mean, founders are very busy. So did you really sit down with founders and kind of you brainstorm together? And is that something that founders should be doing with other entrepreneurs within the space to find solutions, even if it's not, you know, exactly the same business?
1: Yeah. And, uh, I, I do, not quite in that format though, but I would also say just in general, in life for any partner or friend or spouse, just always have that mentality. Like, do you want to vent or do you need advice? And if you think that first, your it. relationships will be a thousand times better, just like general gem for life. They
0: have um, life advice coming out as well. A hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. But no, so do I sit down with founders and brainstorm sometimes? Um, yeah. not so much about if I have a specific problem, uh, but going back to what I wanted is like, if I had an operational problem. Because I've got great relationships with a lot of people in the space, I could usually just send them a message being like, "Hey, I'm having this type of problem. Can we have a quick chat about it, or do you have a solution?" Um, and I'm part of a couple right. of founders groups now as well, where the channel is filled with people that's being like, "Hey, I'm trying to source out X, or I'm running into this type of problem. Who ha- can anyone point me in the right direction?" And that's where you actually have a lot more of these types of discussions happening. It's like, "Hey, this th- bad thing just happened to me. Like, can anyone give me some guidance advice?" You see 20 founders all of a sudden jumping in saying, oh, I've done that too. Oh, here's my solution. Oh, you know what? Unfortunately, there's nothing you can do in that one. It really sucks. We feel for you, you know, but here's how you can avoid it next time. And here's something that you can try to implement and maybe recoup that. Like, So to find a lot of time to sit down with someone, to your point, founders are really busy people. Probably yes. not the easiest to do, seeing as I have founders who are actually really good friends of mine. and I haven't really seen them in like two years now, just because, you know, that's the reality of running a business as well. It is, it is mm-hmm. your life. For at least the first three years, for sure. But yeah, but having that network just to be able to bounce messages, right? Even that alone sometimes is invaluable. But I do do I yeah. do a lot of phone calls, tons of calls. People on the yeah. road, you know. Well, we're all in our cars now, driving to meetings, whatever. So the key to all of this is you can't just be asking; you got to be giving too. So you know, it's relationships are a two-way street, and so I've got reminders in my calendar to reach out to different groups of people every few weeks just to shoot them a message to see how they're doing drop them a text, give them a quick I call, send them an email. And it's gotten to the point now where most of the reminders, I dismiss them without even glancing at what it is because the key people in all those groups, cause I've been doing this for like three and a half, four years now making it into a habit. I just end up talking to them frequently enough. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I've just talked to them last week. Perfect. I can wait. That's a huge. great
0: tip because it's, um, you end up looking you know, like, Oh, I want to, I want to ask this person a, a question or for their advice, but, you don't want to, you know, use use that up too much or take advantage of them. But if you create uh, that reciprocal, and again, life advice, I think that works even in friendships as well, or really, you know, any, really anything. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned a few times the communities where you can kind of post a question and you get feedback. Is it like a Slack group you're a part of? LinkedIn? Where, where do you post these things that you're getting the feedback?
1: For sure. So I'm part of one that's semi-invite only. It, it's not really that closed off. You just need to be a CPG founder and um, know a couple yeah. other people. And that one's actually a WhatsApp group, which is really convenient for me because I'm not a Slack user. I'm, I'm a member of I think at least three communities on there, and I apologize to them frequently because I'm on there like <laughs> once every two months. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been on there in forever. It's just it's just not my primary chat platform, and I don't have time to fact, multiples, but on Slack, there are tons of incredible founder communities, CPG connect one focusing entirely on CPG. There's a founder founders to founders network. There's uh, like, there's tons, there's tons, but yeah. I would say the best way to start getting yourself into these communities is start on LinkedIn. If you're a founder already, or you're thinking about becoming a founder, look up, you know, if you're not already exploring brands within the category you're thinking of getting into starts. Go find who the emerging brands are and go connect with their founders and then see what those founders who, sorry, see what posts and which other founders those founders are connecting with and see what they're engaging with, right? And so you start to build the relationship with them by engaging in their content and then engaging with the people they're engaging with, which also expands your network. And very rapidly, you'll start to find that you're starting to meet all these incredible founders. Um, And I'd also take it offline. Right? We're back to having events in person again, which is amazing. Every single urban city, for the most part, has some type of founder meetup group. Some have more than others. Montreal is actually incredible. Toronto is decent. Montreal is apparently even better. I hear, I hear, I haven't been. But look into that too, because there's a lot of those communities and it's a great way to start connecting with the founders. And a lot of those are hosted by founder groups and they're a way for you yeah. to get introduced and get connected into those.
0: I love it. I, I think, I mean, I just think to the days that I had my business and you're to your point, extremely busy. So just being able to prioritize family time, if you're a full, if you're still full time working that and the business, and it's a lot. So having those communities to kind of lean on and just hear some of the other stories I think is, is always so valuable. So Now you have come from an entrepreneurial family and you, you know, tried your own business. And I think you mentioned there was a couple others. So are you done with being a founder and starting your own business? Do you think that there's going to be more, even though you're not an idea person, are there going to be more ideas that you want to tackle in the future? Uh,
1: You know, I've, I've had a few other areas I'd like to go and explore as a, as a founder, not, not in food or CPG hard pivot out of that. Uh, it's a really fascinating place, and I love the category. But it has—I uh, think every founder in the space will tell you—you you have to be a special type of crazy to go into it because yeah. it is—it is so rough. I mean, you just get knocked left, right, everywhere. It's like being on a boat in the middle of a storm, right? You just hang on for dear life, and you know, try to stay afloat a lot of the time. And, and you know, that was a big learning for me too. You know, I—I I like running things, but that was a lot more pressure than I really wanted to handle without having a. A broader support team working directly with me uh and that's and that's yeah. a really common thing from a lot of founders too right running solo to your point running solo is tough um you know it doesn't yeah. need to be a co-founder being on board but having a team member or a you know someone who's like a partner without being an actual okay. partner it makes a huge difference um so yeah i, totally. I have some other ideas i'd like to do uh, just by kind of looking at what's happening out in uh out in the market you know i think yeah, I've, I have a few ideas, but the reality is I probably won't get to any of them because they all require a huge amount of capital to start, which has become such. It's a barrier everywhere. I mean, even realistically now to start a CP like a food and beverage brand, you know, I used to say you could maybe start with sixty k, but really you're looking at like at least a hundred thousand realistically to get off the ground with any type of real fast growth projection. Yeah, it's 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 a huge amount of huh. capital required.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we we've talked about. I mean, I. A few of these things that I think some of your thoughts came through but myths that founders are told that you kind of realized because I know you're you you're now in these communities and and a founder yourself so what are some myths that founders are told that you would want to dispel or even for yourself things that you thought that
1: you would wish you didn't think oh yeah so many so many um <laughs> wh- where we begin uh, you know, there's some really basic ones that I think are now becoming more common knowledge, but, you know, the the reality of doing a three-year push and being bought out for some millions of dollars is highly improbable, Like That's a unicorn. Like, yeah. They're called unicorns for a reason. Like, let's rea- realize that. You really need to be able to differentiate yourself. You know, there's a lot of, especially over the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic is actually a great example of what happens when you don't differentiate. If you hopped on to, I don't know if this is still true. But certainly, when I was doing a lot of work with Wander on TikTok in particular, you'd hop over to like the small business check hashtag, and the number of candle makers, soap makers, beard oil makers, right? All the relatively low barrier to entry categories just got swarmed, and everybody jumped onto things like TikTok. And they're all people who are like, "Yeah, I've been doing this for a year and a half, and I have like no sales." Like, well, what's your differentiator? If you don't have one, or if you do, you're not communicating that very well. So, you know, you go and look at some of the categories that are really hot. Anything in snacks is a prime example. Super competitive. Um, Everyone's fighting for that space. And the reality is when you're getting listed, you're knocking somebody else out, right? And that's something I don't think... Everyone talks about getting on shelf, but you also have to think the reverse. You're knocking someone off. So it means that you have to have something that has a higher value to a consumer, that's gonna move more units, gonna help grow the category. It's innovative in some way, which really today innovation is so rare. It's much more iteration than anything else. So how do you position that in a way that it seems innovative? Really important and really hard to do. Uh, and some founders are really good at it. Uh, some are actually good at it but get so caught up in the day-to-day they can't see forest for the trees and they just go down the wrong path um and some just don't have a marketing background and aren't great at it and so rely on creative talents and some of us are good some not. and you know lots of range, range of quality out there um yeah. so, you know that's a big one you know the rush to retail i think is also you know kind of hinted at that before number of doors you're in is important because there is a critical mass required for you to hit profitability so the, the yeah. doors are important to a degree but the turns like the velocity in those stores is way more important and people up until very recently talked about the number of doors as being a real metric of success and anyone who's actually been in the space for any real amount of times like not really because you can get listed wow. today and get delisted in three months if you're not moving so i'm knowing rather... also
0: that there's always someone trying to take your spot right like Constantly. there's always that someone trying to take your spot because you just took someone else's
1: exactly right and so um, yeah. you know really direct to consumer is getting very expensive due to shipping Uh, People don't like Amazon for a whole host of reasons, but there's a reason why Mm -hmm. people keep going to it. And even I, who am not the biggest fan of Amazon for many reasons, have to advocate for emerging brands that, yeah, you should really be considering it. If for nothing else, to take advantage of the logistics, bring your shipping costs down in Canada, because Canadian shipping is ridiculous. And then if you are going to start breaking into the bigger retailers, really read all the terms and conditions and understand all the costs that are going to come along with those big retailers there's the listing fees there's chargebacks Mm -hmm. there's mandatory trade spend there's just it costs a lot and the biggest retailer in the country while it gets you a lot of product comes with some very very challenging terms so you know maybe don't rush to be in the biggies right away know
0: who you're signing a deal with
1: (laughs) yeah very much so yeah, uh, in- yeah those, those are the big ones. And then, and then it's all the other stuff, right? Like, everything's going to take longer than you think. Um, you know, there's a, a sh- humongous number of founders who you know who are probably still have some type of second job or a side gig to support what they're doing. You know, so, again, once you're in the space, you start actually understanding that so many of the brands you know and love are actually, like, three people behind the scenes because that's how businesses are run now. It's uh, it's amazing But also understand, you know, it takes a long time for things to gain traction and to get going. So you need to plan everything a lot. And that's why it's so great to talk to a lot of people in advance, have really realistic expectations around your growth plans. If you can find mentors, even better. Because mentors can really help ground you. Because as founders, we get very excited about everything. Everything's exciting. Right? Oh, we got a new store. Let's go focus on that right now. Oh, we—that's a new shiny oh. social platform. Let's go check out the focus. threads.
0: Focus.
1: Right. Yeah. And you have to anchor yourself. And be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that really the right retailer? Do we need to be on that new platform? What were the results of that last campaign we run? And how can we actually use that data instead of just saying, oh, that's some great data, and then racing by it and not actually using it? Right. It's—it's it's so easy to do that because everything's exciting. You're in high growth. Positive, positive, positive. Sometimes just, you know, slow down a bit. And that's where having an advisor, having a really strong partner who's on that side of things can really help keep you on track.
0: Perfect. Okay. And then my very last question for you. So as you know, the name of the podcast is How I Became. How you became to that place you are right now, whether it's how I became, you know, Frustrated with my path, how I became happy, how I became a founder. If you were to name the place you are right now of how I became, what would your episode be called? And it can be long, short, anything.
1: (sighs) That's a really good one. You know, I I think it's uh, how I came. That's really good. I'm trying to frame it into the how, how I became. I think it's how I became the jack of all trades I am today is really what it is. Uh, you know, I've built yeah. my entire career based on relationships. And so um, while I do have definitely have a core skill set, it is one that is spread across a lot of different skills. So, you know, I know a little bit about all different types of marketing, but I'm not an executor or a tactician on any of them because I've never got hands on, you know, I can tell you all about name a category, I can talk to you all about the trends and how consumers are shopping it and what's happening in a retailer, but I don't work in any of those spaces. And that all really came from my parents, A, one, really emphasizing the importance of being curious and wanting to learn and just pursuing the things that catch your attention and you find interesting. Obviously some business acumen from both my parents being business people, like it just naturally flows. But then also like relationships, you know, I was in management consulting for seven years prior to joining the agency. And that was all thanks to an introduction made by one of my profs, because I had built a relationship with him. I joined the agency because one of my best friends from my MBA, who I have a long relationship with and clearly best friends, tried to launch two other companies together before this one that didn't work out for a whole host of reasons, you know, got this because he brought me in to come run the thing, you know, most of the opportunities I get now because I know people and it's all relationship driven. And um, so, yeah. Um so it's just that knowing people and being curious and trying to learn lots about little things so you never know when it's going to be handy or when it might be useful to someone has really led me to be where I am in my career today. I
0: love it. How I became a Jack of Trades. Perfect name. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, answering all of my endless questions and hopefully helping some aspiring entrepreneurs out there.
1: Oh, my pleasure. How I Became, a BloomX podcast, is hosted by Kelly Yafet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.